16, and I'll begin reading here, and the scripture says in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. The last part of that passage in verse 20 is a little bit complicated, but Jesus was simply in a time of progressive revelation where his identity was being made known and he was gathering his disciples who were closest to him, revealing himself to them, who he was, what his purpose was, and he lays down the principle here of the church, and Jesus says that he's going to build the church. Now, the scripture says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and it's on him that the church is built, and because Jesus promised to build the church, even though in certain areas of the world the church may ebb and flow, it may be healthier at times and unhealthier at other times, it may be growing at times, it may be uh, rescinding at times, the one promise that is true is that the church will be central to the kingdom of God, the church and the people of God will advance, and it is guaranteed to have success in that regard uh, for the glory of God. Now we fast forward just a little bit to Acts chapter 2. You remember Jesus has ascended back into heaven here just as he uh, completed his work on the earth, and uh, the days had passed, and it came time for Pentecost, and the believers gathered there in the upper room, and they began to pray. They were praying in anticipation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit being the third person of the Trinity, uh, who is co-equal and co-eternal with God, had been at work in the world all the way from the time that the Bible says that he was uh, hovering above the face of the deep and was active even in the role of creation with Jesus, the one who was the active agent as things were created. The Holy Spirit was active all through that history, all through biblical history, but he was coming in a unique way at Pentecost because he would come not just to be active, but to dwell within believers. And when the Spirit of God fell, as you know the story of Acts chapter 2, there were thousands that came to faith in Christ as they preached there at the temple, and they were able to, the people were able to hear the gospel and understand it uh, in their own tongue. And there were many who came to faith in Christ. And early on, they had this huge number of believers who had to gather together to begin to do what it was that Jesus came to this world for them to do, to serve him and to be a part of his kingdom. And that's where we pick up reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And the Bible says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. 
they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So in this context, in these early chapters, we see the gospel being proclaimed. When the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit of God is working in uh, the hearts of the people. They're believing. They're coming to follow Jesus. They're being publicly baptized and proclaiming their faith in Christ. And then they're gathering together in community with other believers. And they're beginning to learn the Word of God and obey the apostles' doctrine. They're breaking bread. They're observing, undoubtedly, the Lord's Supper here um, as they're gathering together in fellowship. And they're praising God, and God is adding to the church. Now, we find out very soon after that that these were not a perfect people. I'm always a little bit amused when people say, well, I want to go back to the days of of uh, the New Testament church. Well, my question is, which one do you want to go back to? You want to go back and be like Corinth, or you want to go back and be like uh, Ananias and Sapphira in, in, in Acts chapter 5? I mean, which group do you really want to be a part of here? You've got to be careful, because sometimes we idealize what might not be reality. Uh, in every age, there's good, there's evil, there's God's work, there's the enemy's work, and, but in the midst of it all, God prevails, and his people are r- raised up to do his work. So tonight as we think about theology for life and the doctrine of the church, we're going to ask this question and try to answer it as we have these few minutes together. What is the church? Now if I were to have time tonight to go around with a microphone, and don't be nervous, I'm not going to do it, but if I were to go around with a microphone and hand you a a microphone and say, tell me what is the church? Well, we get probably characteristics of the church. We get different people's ideas or concepts of what the church is, and they'd probably be pretty good. And by the time we put them all together, we might come up with a good definition of what the church is, maybe a biblically consistent one. But the answer is not exactly as simple as you might think. So I want to start this evening by sharing what the Baptist Faith and Message says about the church in Article 6. And here's what it says. You can find this online, uh, easy to read if you want to go back and read these different articles. But here's what it says. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, that's only about half of it, but it's the basic framework for what I want us to think about tonight. The one thing we must understand that we all know, at least intuitively, even if we've not verbalized it, is that the church is not a building. So when we leave tonight, we drive off the hill, we go either out here on the main road or we go off on Mission Drive over here, and this church becomes empty, then at that point, it's only a building. Now, obviously, it's the place that we identify with as where the church meets, And where we come together to organize ourselves and to learn and to fellowship and to pray and to give and to evangelize and do these other things that we do within the context of the church. But when we leave the church, we'll have left the building. So it's not the building. It's the people who comprise the church. And the building itself may look like a typical church. It might have a steeple on top like ours does, or the church might meet in a house church somewhere in the furthest reaches of Asia, or it might meet in a 
converted warehouse in a metropolitan area of the country. I mean, there's all sorts of places that the church meets, but ultimately the people are the church. And the word that we get our word church from in the New Testament, as many of you know, is the word ecclesia. And it means literally a called out assembly, but there's more to it than that. We're not only called out, but when we're called out and we gather, we prepare to be sent. So it's this reciprocal deal. So it's not just the idea of the people assembling, but the question is, what are they assembling for? And when they assemble, what are they preparing to do? And then what is the result of that as we do what God has called us to do? So even if we all agree, and I hope we do tonight, that the church is the people, we still need to clarify who the church is and what the church is really supposed to be about. And among those who claim to be born again, the prevailing American view is that you go to where the church meets, you get what you need, and you leave, and that's pretty much it. I mean, we're in the midst of, as I said this morning, of this selfish, consumeristic uh, mindset, of this individualistic mindset to where we only think about the church, about what we can get from it, rather than seeing it as a, as a community and as a body of believers, a, a group of people who have come together to do the work of God. And I think really to be committed to the local church, you've got to know what the local church is. You've got to have a good understanding biblically of what we're to be about. So let's think for just a few moments about some biblical definitions of the church. We looked at the statement of faith, but what about some biblical definitions of the church? Well, the local church is a gathering of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in every gathering of believers, there are uh, undoubtedly unbelievers who gather as well, even as we think about the wheat and the tares. But we're committed to gather together for those New Testament purposes that rise up out of that Acts chapter 2 uh, teaching. And we're here to be committed to meet regularly for worship. We meet to teach the Word of God and to learn the Word of God. Uh, we're fellowshipping together so that we're encouraging one another and we're bearing one another's burdens. We meet so that we can pray. And our one purpose is to make disciples of all peoples. So that tells us that when we do what we do as a church, there's one question that we have to continually come back to and ask ourselves. Is what we are doing in the activities that we're involved in, in the way that we invest ourselves, in the way that we prioritize ourselves as a church, are these things contributing to the making of disciples? Are we doing church in such a way that disciples are being made because that's what Jesus told us to do, to go and make disciples. Somebody gave the definition of the church as a community of all true believers for all time, and I think that is at least in part true. Uh, God has always had a community of true believers. Think about it from the Old Testament perspective. They're looking forward to the promise, all the way back in that first promise that came in Genesis 3.15 with the uh, first promise of the gospel when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It, from there, it was the beginning of, of the promise of the Messiah who was to come. The raising up of Israel in uh, Genesis 12 and the covenant that God made with Abram, ratified again in, in, and uh, reiterated in chapter 15, then again in chapter 17. It was a message that God was going to raise up for himself a special people, not because of their number or not because of their worthiness, just because God chose them to use them, and that would be Israel. 
And through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the reason all the nations of the earth would be blessed is because that's the Messiah, Jesus. And that's our whole celebration as we think about the church and we think about Holy Week and, and the cross and the resurrection. It's all about the promise of the Messiah. So Israel, their dealings with God, the law, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, the words of the prophets, all pointing forward to that one moment in time in the fullness of time when God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. Galatians 4 and verse 4. That was the realization of the promise. So when Jesus came, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So in a very real sense, the kingdom of God was manifested in Jesus physically, spiritually, eternally. It was made known in the world. But there's also a present future aspect of the kingdom. It's present in the fact that it's already been made manifest in Jesus. It's future in that it has not all been completely consummated yet. We've not seen the full realization of all that it means for Christ to rule and reign over all eternity and all things to be brought together in the new heavens and the new earth. We have the privilege now of looking back where those Old Testament believers had the hope of looking forward. And I like an article that I read by a writer by the name of Mike Stiles in uh, Nine Marks of a, of a Healthy Ministry. And he said, he's talking about a parachurch ministry, actually, and kind of the proliferation of all these extra ministries that are out there. And he said this about the church. He said, the church is the God-ordained local assembly of believers who have committed themselves to each other. They gather regularly, they teach the word, celebrate communion and baptism, discipline their members, establish a biblical structure of leadership, they pray and they give together. Certainly the church may do more, but listen to this, but it is not less than this. He goes on to write, the church consists of those who meet together because they believe in the gospel. Each member believes, I am a sinner who deserves God's righteous judgment. He sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, to pay the penalty of death that I deserve. And he promises that all who believe that Jesus died for their sins and was raised from the dead receive forgiveness for all their sins and eternal life as a free gift. So this is who we are. We believe the gospel. That We believe the good news. We believe that God loves sinners like us. We believe that God sent a redeemer in his son. We believe that God didn't redeem us just to take us to heaven. God redeemed us to be his presence in the world as the spirit of God is in us. We are representing Christ to the world so that people would see and hear about Christ through us. And Paul gave extensive instructions on uh, the importance of the word of Christ dwelling richly in us and then how that overflows uh, in our own thanksgiving to God and how we passionately pursue the Great Commission because of what God has done in our lives. So it can't just end with us. It really begins with us. So you understand that, that when God saves you and he sets you apart, he's not setting you apart as a reservoir. He's putting you headlong into the river of his will. There's a big difference. If a church just becomes a, a repository and we just think about ourselves, we just, we're just going to gather people. We're just going to come together and we're going to be this, this gathering of believers. But we don't see beyond that to ask, what is it really all about? Then we've missed the point. And one of the things that's so tricky for churches is we can get busy doing a lot of stuff and it may not be the main stuff it may be a lot of activity it may be good things it may be busy stuff it may help people but if it's not centered 
on the gospel and on Jesus and his glory in the world, then we're missing the point if we're not sharing with people who are outside of Christ. It's important to note, as I've already referenced, that the Bible never uses the word church to refer to a building where people meet, but it does use the concept of the church to refer to cities where people met, where there were believers that were gathered. Now, I think this is a little bit of an interesting nuance because when you think about the church in Jerusalem, the church at Philippi, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome even, uh, in many cases, there were probably too many believers to meet in one location in those places. Now, I've got um, theological convictions about multi-site churches because I think churches should be local expressions of the body of Christ in their place doing the work. Uh, so I won't get into all that, but what I will say is when the Scripture's referring to the church at wherever, it's the concept, he's talking about the believers who are there in that region. And uh, when we named the church at Martinsburg, and we planted that church uh, coming up on 10 years now, uh, that's where that came from. It wasn't that we were saying the church at Martinsburg was the only church in Martinsburg. That was not our concept. But I just started looking at the scripture, and I'm thinking, well, there's a lot of places where it refers to the church as the church at. So we could rightly be called the church at Crosslands, and it would be a biblical expression because we're believers who are gathered here to follow the word of God, to know Jesus, and to make Jesus known. And ultimately, the church in this community is not just comprised of us. It's comprised of all people who have come to faith in Jesus for salvation. And they may be in other expressions of churches. Some may be good, some may be not so good. But ultimately, they too are part of God's church. So there's the church kind of at large of all the ages uh, around the world. And then there's the local church, and that's primarily how the New Testament speaks. It's about the church in a certain area or in a certain specific location of the body of Christ um, that met. And we're going to look for the next few minutes at some biblical metaphors of the church that I think are going to help us. Now, in no way are we going to exhaust the biblical metaphors. There are a lot of metaphors about what the church is, and I won't get to all these tonight. But I do want to hit on some of the main ones and kind of talk through these uh, to help us think about what the church is. And I love the scripture. You know, we, we always say uh, we believe the Bible literally, and we do. You know, I, I believe the whole thing from the beginning to the end. But there's so much language in the scripture that is symbolic, and, and it is descriptive, and there's so many different ways that language is used to describe what God is communicating to us. So that doesn't take away from the fact that it's literally true, and it can all be believed, but it helps us to understand the creativity of God, even in how he communicates. And you look at the ministry of Jesus and the uh, in, incredibly descriptive ways that he would talk about ordinary things of life and he would make spiritual points and, and the people would be drawn in by that because it would be something that they could identify with. And I think that's exactly what these biblical metaphors are. And even that passage of Scripture, as I was thinking about that and, and uh, reading it in Matthew chapter 16, um, I thought about when uh, uh, I learned about the part of what was in uh, Caesarea Philippi. And David, this morning in the service, mentioned the last trip that we took to Israel and um, just how meaningful that was. Well, one of the meaningful sites that we visited was the Temple of Pan, which is at Caesarea Philippi. I was telling somebody about this yesterday because I have an actual picture of it that I took 
uh, in my office among some other um, Holy Land pictures. And at Caesarea Philippi was this temple of, of Pan to this false god. And there's a cave cut out in, in the uh, side of the mountain, basically, or the side of the hill. And it's this stone cutout. And there's a stream that comes out from there. And at the top of the stream, people would come to this temple and they would offer these sacrifices. And the stream at one point goes under the, under the earth and then it appears again a little bit further downstream. And the thought was that when they offered these sacrifices, that if nothing came out on the other end, that this false god had accepted their sacrifice. But if there was blood that rose up at the end of it, he wasn't pleased with it and he didn't. Um, didn't accept it. That place was commonly referred to as the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. And many Bible teachers think that when Jesus was walking through there and Peter makes his confession of Christ as the Messiah, Jesus may have literally pointed to that place at Caesarea Philippi and said, even the gates of Hades will not prevail against this church that I'm going to establish. So that's the way these biblical metaphors for the church are, is it's, it's these descriptive things that would help us understand uh, what's being taught. And the first one I want to think about is the idea of the church as the body of Christ. The church as the body of Christ. And I'll just give you some uh, scripture references here. I won't take the time to read them all right now. But uh, one would be, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, which indicates that we are members of the body of Christ. And it says in verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And the illustration that he gives is of the human body. And the human body is complex. Uh, God designed us so that we would have uh, different functions for different parts of our body, yet we're one unified body. And each aspect of our physical being is important because God designed it so that it would sustain us and so that we could do what we needed to do in life. And it's the same way with the local body of Christ, that we're one body, but we're made of many parts. Christ is the head. He's the one to whom our allegiance is owed. But in that allegiance, we're working together, and each aspect of us is important. And all of us, if we're saved, have spiritual gifts. Now, I believe that we have a primary spiritual gift, and then I think we also have secondary spiritual gifts. I think inventories for spiritual gifts are somewhat limited, but what I know to be true is what the Bible teaches, and that is when we come to faith in Christ and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God comes to indwell us and He's our guarantee, He gifts us at that point with some spiritual gift that we can be useful with in the body of Christ. Now, this is why it's so important that we're diverse. Can you imagine how boring it would be if we were all the same? I mean, we'd be unnecessary. It's like if everybody's doing the same thing and everybody's gifted the same way, then we're going to be, for the majority of us, we're going to be useless. But if we all complement one another and we work hand in hand and the different parts of the body are functioning, then God's church as the body of Christ is going to be healthy. Now, you see how churches get so unhealthy to where people are sitting or they're expecting to be spectators or they're thinking that they're only consumers. And then pretty soon you got just a little portion of the body that's working. Think about that physically. If we draw that illustration out a little bit more, if something happens to our bodies where we are severely limited, 
Maybe we only have partial use of our body or something happens neurologically or something to where only a portion of our body works and how weak we are and, and, and how ineffective we can be physically doing what we need to do in our lives. Same way with the church. You know what else happens? There are some churches that lose sight of the fact that Christ is the head. And what happens is they start thinking within the, the church that maybe a group of people is the head or a certain leadership aspect is the head or they might even get off track and, thinks the, and think the pastor's the head. Well, I'm just an underservant. I, I, I serve the chief shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd serving the chief shepherd. Now, you ought to follow as long as I'm trying to follow the chief shepherd and I'm doing that in, in, uh, with good intentions and biblically consistent. But Christ is the head. I mean, God buries the workmen and the work goes on. This church does not rise and fall on me. If it does, you're in pretty sad shape. But what God does is he puts us together with effective leadership so that we can use every part of the body for the work of God in the world. And I think the, one of the most important characteristics of a body is that it's alive. Think about it. A dead body is not much use in the world, and a dead church is not much use in the kingdom. So it's a tragic thing when the church of the living God is a dead church. Now, obviously, there's always at least a a remnant, even in the worst of churches, where there's genuinely believing people who love the Lord and want to see things happen for the Lord. But there are a lot of churches, they just they, they end up just dying. They're graveyard dead. I mean, somebody's going to padlock the door eventually, and it's going to go up with a realtor sign. That happens. Why? Well, in part, people forget why they're there, and they forget who's the head, and they forget what the purpose of the church is, and they get doing all these other things and get focused on things that are ultimately not that important. So the church is the body of Christ. Another metaphor is that the church is the bride of Christ. The passage of Scripture for this is Ephesians chapter 5, and he states in verse 32, the mystery is great. He's talking about husbands and wives, but he says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So Paul says, let me tell you about how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. First of all, they're both to be relating to Christ because he's the one who is Lord and King over our lives. And then they're to submit to him. There's to be a proper order in the home. There's to be a healthy functioning of the Christian family as God has ordered it. And then he says, Paul does, but I'm telling you about Christ and the church. You see, Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And the main application is that we are to relate to Christ by surrendering ourselves to him. We are to relate to him in love, just as a bride loves her husband, and we are to thrive in the knowledge that he loves us and that he chose us to be his bride. Now, here's what gives me comfort. Anybody that's got any sense that, that enters into a human marriage relationship knows that there's flaws. And I know everybody goes in with eyes of love, you know, it's all good, everything's smooth. But listen, we know in our heart of hearts, even when we say, I do, we're marrying a fellow sinner. And we know there's going to be some issues because there's already been some issues. 
You know, people tell me we, well, we, we, it's always been smooth. We've never had one single issue. We, we hadn't disagreed in 30 years of marriage. Well, somebody's useless in a marriage or somebody's lying. Because one of the most sanctifying things that happens in our lives is marriage. And then I'd say child rearing would be the second one. If you really want to find out how spiritual you are, get married or try to raise children. Both of those will reveal what a great sinner you are. But the beauty of this relationship with Christ is that we're the flawed ones. He's the perfect one, and he still loves us. Just like we would love a broken spouse or someone with shortcomings or someone that maybe doesn't measure up, he loves us, and he's patient with us, and he's got our best interest in mind, and he's bringing us along, and he's growing us, and he's helping us to be like him. And as the bride of Christ, we are awaiting the bridegroom, with a great hope of what is coming in the future and the promise of his return. Another metaphor is that the church is the household or the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints or the households or, or God's household. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. Now, the family image is used um, repeatedly uh, in the scripture, and families come together, first of all, because they got a common bond. And this is a beautiful thing. For those of you, if you've been maybe in a different uh, cultural context, maybe like you, you went to Logan or something. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you've been in a different cultural context, I'm sorry if you're from Logan, but if, if you went in a different cross-cultural context, for example, and somebody speaks a different language, they've been raised in a different country, they have absolutely really nothing in common with you. But then you find out that they're a follower of Jesus. And you can have more in common with them in just a short time in your understanding of them and they of you than you might have with your own blood family. Why is that? Because we've got a common bond. We have the same Savior. There's one Spirit who indwells us. He draws us together in that family bond. And it's so important that we see ourselves like that uh, because the family bond keeps us together in love, even when things may not be going well. And we ought to exhibit those characteristics. Now, for many years now, uh, I guess 16 years now, uh, we've used the, the tagline in our church, uh, growing God's forever family. And the idea of the vine and the branches, John 15 and verse 5, uh, that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches and apart from him we can do nothing. But we really need to be that. You understand, this is not just a nice little phrase, a little slogan we put on social media. It ought to be who we are as the people of God. And I really feel like that's one of the strengths that we have had that has uh, empowered us to do many of the things that we have done. And um, we're committed in that sense. And you know, you ought to be committed to your family if you can. And I understand things happen along the way and things don't go as you want them to go. But you've got to be with the people of God who are doing the work of God for the glory of God. And you've got to find that to where that's being cultivated and where there's, a, where there's a healthiness about that. Not perfection, but there's a healthy environment where that can take place. And there's a big dose of forgiveness in our midst when somebody does or says something dumb or, or maybe we let each other down or we don't measure up to some expectation, either spoken or unspoken. We're part of a family and, and we're, we're here for one purpose and we want to obey Christ and, and be sure that we're following uh, in that one purpose. And then the church is the temple of God. 
And that one follows in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Of course, the Spirit of God is, uh, is dwelling in us. So individually, we're the temple of God. But then collectively, we're the temple of God because the Spirit of God is indwelling us. And as the temple of God, we should, um, should, we should nurture the church. We should grow to be as healthy as we possibly can. Um, we should try to help each other be as healthy as we possibly can. We should uh, encourage each other along the way. And that's part of that uh, gathering together and, and really ad- admonishing one another as well as encouraging. And it's that give and take. But you know what it has to happen? And I think it's what we're missing. I, I really, I think it's one of the greatest weaknesses in, in the American church right now is that we're so individualistic and so consumeristic that people are coming and getting what they want, but they're doing the same thing they do when they get home from work every day. That's they hit the garage door button, it goes up, they pull their car in it, they hit it again, it goes down, and they don't want to see or talk to or deal with anybody else. Now, I feel that way some days. I'm not going to lie to you. But what I would say is that can't be the way the church operates. You've you got to know people well enough that you can encourage people. You've you got to be with people to be able to minister to people. And it's one of the reasons we really encourage our small group uh, Bible fellowship ministry and our discipleship ministry as we do in this church because you can't encourage somebody if you don't know them. Well, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Well, you'd say the same thing to the lady at Kroger. You'd say the same thing to the guy that's changing your tires. I mean, how are you doing today? Oh, it's pretty good. I'm all right. And that's about as far as it goes. It's surface level. But I ought to be able to say to you, um, and you ought to be able to say to me, how are you doing? And you know enough about me that uh, what, how I respond is going to be helpful to you to know how you can encourage me or, or how I can uh, do likewise. And we've got to be in that community of, uh, of people within the temple of God that, that um, we, we can do that. And then the church is the flock of God also. It's another good one. Paul challenged the Ephesian elders a little bit later on in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 20 uh, to be on guard for themselves and for all the flock. And he said, the Holy Spirit's made you overseers of these people. You need to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, Peter commanded the elders in first peter chapter 5 shepherd the flock of god among you and then he gave instructions on how to do that and you know i sometimes preaching illustrations get driven to the extreme and one of the things this is confession one of the ones that bothers me is the one where preachers start talking about how dumb sheep are y'all heard that sheep are dumb there's dumb animals they'll do this they'll do that well it might be true but that's like me standing in front of y'all and saying really you know what i think y'all just dumb now, how'd you like that? Now, we might, some of us, be dumb, but, but you don't need to know that. I mean, you don't need to hear that. I don't think that's the primary emphasis in the Scripture when it talks about the flock of God. I think the primary emphasis in the Scripture is that there's a shepherd who cares deeply about that flock, and he's going to do what he needs to do to take care of them, to nourish them, to feed them, and to get them safely home. I think that's the illustration. I think that's what Psalm 23 is. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's the emphasis that there is a God who cares about us. And he cares so much about us that he would send his son to die for us as the perfect lamb of God. And the relationship between the the people of God and 
Jesus as the chief shepherd and God as a shepherd is so important. And I think it teaches us a lot about how we ought to, how we ought to care for God's people. God's people are not a means to an end. They are a treasure to God. And that's how we, as leaders, should see God's people, not as a nuisance or as uh, people who are going to do what we want them to do so we can get to where we need to get, get to, but as people for whom Jesus died, who've been created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, who are infinitely valuable to God, so valuable to God that he gave his only son. And that changes everything. It changes how we care for each other, how we minister to each other, how we nurture the body, the flock of God, and it creates an environment where people are drawn in because they're looking for that kind of care, and, and they're looking for that kind of ministry where somebody's going to care about them not just as a means to an end, but as a people who are valuable to God. And then another metaphor is, that, um, is, is the connection of the church being uh, in the kingdom of God. That's a little bit different. There's a nuance here, and the relationship between the church and God's kingdom is, is kind of com- complicated. But think about it this way. The church is the primary tool in God's kingdom to do the work of the kingdom, to make known the king of the kingdom, and to glorify God through that. So back to my question I asked earlier. How is what we're doing contributing to the making of disciples at Cross Lanes Baptist Church? We've got to ask another question. How is the making of disciples at Cross Lanes Baptist Church contributing to the kingdom work of God in the world? And how is it pointing people ultimately to the king? It's synergistic. It all fits together. If you get any of those pieces off of the table, then you've missed the point. And God's kingdom has come into the world in Christ, but it awaits its completion when Christ will return and he'll rule and reign over all the earth. You know one of the greatest truths of the Bible is that we'll rule and reign with him. We are co-heirs with Christ and we'll also be given responsibility in the eternal kingdom. And here's the practical application for us in all of this. The church lives under the rule of Christ Jesus Christ, who is our King. If there were one principle that I were to say is the number one guiding principle for the church to stay focused and to stay healthy and to stay on track and to keep its priorities in order and to be able to properly deal with conflict and to deal with disappointments and to deal with challenges it would be this one principle. And that is that the church lives under the rule of Jesus Christ, who is our King. And if people can be continually driven back to that, they'll not get off in factions, they'll not get off in selfish pursuits, they'll not project things onto leadership and on the church itself that should not be. They will say, we are here for one reason, and that is because we are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who is our King and by whom we are privileged to be a part of his kingdom. So the church is not a place that we attend for spiritual input two or three times a month. We don't have anything better to do. Uh, We are spiritually and eternally connected now in Christ with him 
and with the members of the family. And the idea that a Christian could live his or her life independent spiritually apart from either of those is just an absurd thought. And it doesn't even fit. But here's our challenge. I was blessed to grow up with a love for the church and an understanding of what the church is. I don't remember any of my life when there was not that aspect of the community of the church. Now, in my early adulthood, I got away from it because of my own selfishness and certain things that I was wanting to focus on. But even then, I I was continually drawn back to the church because I knew the significance of it and the value of the people of God. And when God got a hold of me and I ended up in, in ministry and ended up in the focus that he wanted me on, he gave me such a deep and abiding love for the church that it's just, it just compels me to do what I do. And we all should have that. You don't have to be a pastor to have that. You just love the church. You love God's people. You love the flock. I mean, it's who we are. And that makes us a family that is an eternal family. And uh, we talk a lot around here about uh, the disciples' path. And I'm just going to touch on this. Uh, we teach on this occasionally, but I do want to touch on it tonight as we think about kind of how do we help people understand what all this means? And we ask that question, how can I follow Jesus and grow as his disciple? And I already told you the John 15, 5 mentality, Jesus the vine, we, we as the branches. But we kind of think through that in, in um, four basic categories that are not linear, but they're congruent. They go together, and here they are. We want to lead people to be worshipers of God. That means that we've got to get the gospel to them so they can come to know him. But those who have come to Jesus through the hope of the gospel, they are to live life as worshipers. Prayer and ministry of the word and, and, and learning and living for God. And really seeing all of life as a comprehensive opportunity to worship the king of the kingdom. And that's where worship comes in. We talk a lot about small group because that's the... That's the community building aspect where we're trying to connect with other people and know them at a different level than we know if we just come in and out on a Sunday morning. So that small group opportunity is the way to build that fellowship and that community. And I would also say that's where a lot of the pastoral care takes place. It's where a lot of the ministry of church member to church member takes place. And I'd highly encourage you, if you've not committed to a group where uh, you can be known and know other people, I'd highly encourage you to consider doing that because you're going to get a whole different level of experience at this church than you would otherwise uh, when you get into a, a group where, where that can take place. And uh, those are so important for, for community. And then we talk about ministry because that's where spiritual gifts are implemented. And as I said earlier, everybody's got a spiritual gift, but we have opportunity to exercise those spiritual gifts as we serve the Lord doing the different things that we do. Ministry is not just when we have a scheduled ministry here, but it's ministry in the community. It's ministry to one another. It's different things that we do uh, to exercise our spiritual gifts. And then mission. Um, Mission is making Christ known in the world. That may be through evangelism locally, or it may be through uh, missions nationally. It might be through cross-cultural missions and whatever the context might be. But we have an opportunity as disciples, to be on mission. So you put all those pieces together and you put the framework in in view. Uh, We're here to grow God's forever family. And John 15, 5 is our guiding principle for that, really the whole chapter in John 15. Um, And as we do that, we want to lead people to to worship, to to, uh, commit to community in in, uh, the small group aspect, 
uh, to minister, to use their spiritual gifts, and to be on mission for Christ in the world. And ultimately what happens is you grow up in your faith, you mature, and we all keep growing, by the way, no matter how old we grow, hopefully we'll continue to grow in Christ, but you keep growing. But here's what else happens. New people are continually added along the way, and they're coming into the family of God. And when they come into the family of God, they start growing, and then they reach out to other people, and it's a continual process until Jesus returns. So the church is central to God's plan in the world, and we should want to be an integral part of God's church, and we should want to be an integral part of a church that understands what God's kingdom and God's glory is all about. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we pray, and we're going to wrap up for tonight. Father, we are thankful for the church that was promised by Jesus, that uh, took form after Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came into the world. And Lord, we are um, amazed that you would call people like us out of darkness and into light. And not only that, but that you would gather us with other people who love you and want to know more about you and want to make you known in the world. Lord, I'm grateful for every person that's a part of this church family. And uh, Lord, we, we want to be good stewards of that. We, we want to, to, to love you well. We want to serve each other. We want to reach the world. We want to minister. We want to be on mission. And uh, Lord, just give us the wisdom and the direction on how to do that. And as I so often pray, Lord, um, I'm so grateful for uh, the, the unity that we have experienced here in this fellowship continually. Lord, it, it is almost unsurpassed, and we're so thankful for that. We don't take it for granted. But we also know we have an enemy that would want to destroy that. We have an enemy that would want to discourage us and and get us off focus and cause us to act and do things, act in ways and do things that would not be fitting uh, for your children. So we ask that you would protect us, give us spiritual wisdom and discernment. Help us understand, Lord, when there are um, challenges coming against us to be able to stand firm in your word and in the power of your spirit. And encourage us as we go through this week. Just help us to remember tonight as we lay down and we go to sleep. Hey, I'm a part of God's family. And what a blessing it is to be a part of God's family because it's an eternal family. It's without end. And it is in Christ. And for that, we're thankful. So keep us safe this evening and even as we leave. And maybe there'll be some weather and other things coming, Lord. We trust you. And we thank you for watching over us as our shepherd as the one who's the shepherd of our souls. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.